Welcome to episode 162 of the Rugby League Republic podcast with your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. In this special episode, we look in depth at the greatest rivalries in rugby league. In volume three of this series entitled The Greatest Rivalries, we take a closer look at one of the great class-based rivalries in the game, the Fibros versus Silver Tails. Join us as we build a rugby league community for all. The Rugby League Republic podcast starts right now. Welcome to episode 162 of the Rugby League Republic podcast, where we aim to bring you the everyday fan's perspective on the greatest game of all, Rugby League. This is Rugby League for the People. This is volume three of our new series, The Greatest Rivalries, and we have a special one. We'll be taking a closer look at the Fibros versus Silver Tails rivalry. Um, and so just a reminder, the, the format for this series is different to those uh, the, our regular fork, uh, our regular podcast. We basically have we go through our set, set of six tackles, but this time we focus on six particular aspects of the rivalry we are investigating. We'll be doing things like talking about the beginnings of the rivalry, our own experiences with it, what makes this rivalry great, and what the future holds for this rivalry. Uh, Tish, this one is shaping up to be a really good one because. Fibros versus Silver Towers, one of the great class-based uh, rivalries, uh, you know, in rugby league. Uh, definitely a very Sydney-centric uh, kind of um, kind of thing, which is uh, all well and good because we are Sydney-based. <laughs> so, so uh, <laughs> we can definitely talk a little bit from experience about what what this rivalry means to the people of Sydney and. Uh, what it's like to be uh, be considered a fibro or a silver tail, and, and you know how people perceive those two things. Uh, so, Tish, are you looking forward to this one? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you know I'd like to obviously say hello to everybody out there. Uh, you know, hope you've been enjoying our sort of our unique sort of podcast this year. We're not just doing you know our regular podcast, but we've got a couple of new ones. And Greatest Rivals has been a great series, and I'm actually really looking forward to going through this one because it was really fun actually researching this because a lot of this stuff happened a long time ago. Rugby league was completely different uh, in those days. I mean, this is, we're talking pre-state of origin, you know, pre-four pre, pre um, four points a tackle, <laughs> right? Uh, you, you know, there's like... Wow, what, that's Ed, before we were born. It's pre-our lives, <laughs> Pretty much, it, it, it is for our lives, and um, you know, even even just the old footage of how um, you know, of how Sydney looked like, how Sydney started looked like back in the in the late seventies. We're talking nineteen seventy eight. Um, yeah, it was it was it, it was great to look back on, and um, yeah, I think it's going to be an absolutely great show. And uh, how about yourself, Doctor T? Is this something that you uh that you were keen on uh exploring? Absolutely. Look, I think uh. You know, with anything, with the great rivalries, it's more than just about, you know, one one party versus another party, one club versus another club, or one organisation versus another one. It's it, There's always, I think, when you find that when – it's a bit like an onion. When you peel the layers off, you, you find mm. there's more more layers 
to the story and this is what we're finding with with a lot of these things and uh uh yeah definitely you'll find that with this rivalry there's something really deep that run you know that runs deep within this rivalry uh which is the reason why it's kind of i mean i wouldn't say it's persisted to this day but i think it's persisted in a different way and there's a there's a potentially sydney-centric reason for that as well which Hopefully, we'll get to explore um, and we'll give our views on as well. So, look, without any further ado, let's get into it. Uh, chapter, or yeah, what we call in it, verse number one, you know, <laughs> tackle number one, the beginnings. Here we go. All right. So, we're going to explore the beginnings of the Fibros versus Silvertails rivalry. And look, before we begin, I'd like to just sort of say we we've done a little bit of research on this. It's uh, we haven't, uh, you know, we, we've used as many resources as we could find, uh, and and it's one of those. This is one of those rivalries where the the more you dig deeper, you'll find lots of interesting sort of anecdotes and stories. And what we what we found is that uh, a lot of the anecdotes kind of. Uh, all roads lead to Roy Masters, basically, because he was the yep. instigator of this. Uh, of of, and we'll get into into that what we mean by that. But look, we wanted to give a bit of a shout out to one particular resource that we've we've used quite extensively, and we'll refer to quite a bit because there's some amazing quotes from it. So uh, this was basically a uh, a lot of this is from uh, a talk that Roy Masters gave at the uh, seventh annual Tom Brock lecture. In, uh, at the New South Wales Leagues Club on the 21st of September 2005, and it was called the Great Fibro versus Silvertail Wars. And so I just sort of give give a shout out. You can Google it and find it. It's on the Tom Brock website, tombrock.com.au. Um, and we're big fans of Tom Brock uh, of the Tom Brock yep. Quest, and uh, we're supporters of uh, you know anything that looks back at history and preserves some of that history, especially the rich history that we've seen in rugby league. So anyway, with that shout out yep. uh, done, done and dusted, let's launch into it. So uh, and Tish- just, uh, oh, sorry, sorry uh, one final thing just about that reference and probably some of the other references that I've found online. And I'm, I'm saying this as a bit of a disclaimer um, is that look, most of the references that I found online uh, was actually players um, and coaches from the Western Suburbs Magpies uh, side of things. Um, the Manly players have been a little more uh, less uh, forthcoming with their <laughs> side of events. Um, so I just want to put that out there, that if it does seem a little West-centric, it's probably because a lot of the references that are out there have been from Western Suburbs coaches or players and so forth. There has been some Manly players that have talked about it, um, and you can even find it in the documentary that Paul Oliver uh Actually released a few a few years ago called Fibros vs Silver Tales, which you can watch on YouTube, and uh, we did want to shout out to to that as well because that was a, a great resource as well. But um, but I just want to throw that out there for any Manly supporters out there. Uh, we don't completely hate you guys. It's just that a lot. I think a lot of the uh, material might seem that way just because of what's out there on the internet at the moment. Yeah, and look, uh, I think it's interesting interesting that you say that, that it seems a lot one sided. The stories because. Uh, uh, I think, as you'll see, hopefully by the end of this uh, this podcast, we'll we'll all uh, see it for what it is, and uh, and uh, definitely let's look at the start of it. But keep that in mind that there's a reason why it's a lot of it's coming from. Uh, it's not completely one way traffic, but it mm-hmm. definitely is uh, has inst- been instigated from the west side. So Tish, uh, do you want to 
kick things off and start the story. All right. So, look, in 1978, uh, you know, in Sydney's western suburbs, uh, economic times are, are tough and biting. Uh, I think this is the uh, double dissolution time era as well of uh, of Goth Whitlam and all that sort of stuff. So there's lots of happening around the world. But but essentially, you know, in the city's working class, which is the western suburbs, funds are low uh, and success is, Roy, uh, success is rare. Uh, you know, the western suburbs magpies haven't won a premiership since 1953. And basically, they've got no money. Um, so what they do is they promote their third grade coach, Roy Masters, to first grade. Um, and he actually, uh, you know, throughout the season, he coined the term Fry Bros, which describes the cheaper housing material which is used to, uh, to build the local houses um, that he, he basically passes on his way to training every day. Um, but, you know, by using that term Fry Bros, he sort of labels, you know, the magpies as sort of the underdog um, of this rivalry. So that's what's happening on the western suburbs side of things. But... Meanwhile, on the northern beaches, life is good. You know, they're next to the beach. Manly is, uh, you know, Manly is situated at one of the most uh, beautiful beaches of, of like, uh, Sydney. It's kind of world-renowned. There's buckets of money uh, in, in, in that area. And it's like the new exciting face of rugby league. You know, they're a fairly new team into the competition. Um, and, you know, they seem to have all the money. And they have success. You know, it's like... Uh, they captured the premiership in 1972, 1973, and 1976, of course, um, and then now it's 1978. So basically, um, you know, it's like another world living in the side of Manly. And I think if you uh, if you think about the Roosters and if you think about Melbourne, probably the way a lot of people think about those two clubs is probably what the way a lot of people felt like with Manly because they were that new successful club that seemed to be able to get their way around town so the actual rivalry uh funny i, I mentioned uh, about melbourne actually started on the 18th of march in 1978 in melbourne uh in a pre-season game uh so what had happened was that mess a western manly had both finished uh just below the two finalists of the wills cup which is the um w- which was the off-season competition in 1978 and then so they uh created a special playoff game uh, to see who was going to be third place. And it, this match was going to be in Melbourne. It was actually a, f- a festival of football. I think there was a, a soccer match, an AFL match, a couple of different other uh, sports were actually playing in this day. So both teams travelled down by plane. Um, but, uh, you know, there was already this tension about where people were sitting on the plane and West players were told not to talk to Manly players. And, the you know, the atmosphere was quite, quite frosty. Uh, the plane was then diverted to Essendon Airport uh, because of fog. While the two teams were waiting um, for the buses to pick them up, they both assumed that there'll be two buses. They found out that actually there was actually only one bus. Um, the Manly players had actually filled the bus uh, first, uh, right at the back, and then uh, the West players, after a while, decided to to board the bus themselves. Uh, now, this is apparently what happened, So, and this is from the West's point of view, but apparently Roy Masters and Les Boyd, uh, they both boarded the bus. As they were boarding the bus, they heard Manly player Ray Higgs make some, you know, disparaging comments about their teammates who were still waiting to enter the bus. That's, uh, you know, that caused a lot of tension on that bus ride. And then both teams were supposed to be staying at the same hotel, 
when they got to the hotel, all of the West players, uh, you know, left the bus. And then uh, Manly Chief Executive Ken Arthurson, who's also down there for the trip, he objected to the fact that both these teams were going to uh, stay in the same uh, accommodation and insisted that West would stay at this hotel while Manly find their own hotel. So basically, a day later, the in the dressing rooms, the match comes around, and uh, Roy Masters basically told his players that you know Manly didn't not want to be on the same plane as Western Suburbs. They refused to travel on the same bus. They refused to be. Um, they refused to actually uh, you know be part of the same hotel. And the reason he claimed was that because Manly and their administrators, their players. They all look down on the Western Suburbs area, the Western Suburbs players, and they feel that we're in inferior and we're second-rate region of Sydney metropolitan area. And basically all that enthusiasm basically infuriated the, the uh, Magpies players who decided to take matters into their own hands. And then as the game started throughout the whole game, they just basically bashed and bruised and bloodied just about every... <laughs> Only player they could find during the game. Um, there is a story where uh, Roy Master says that the touch judges, because they were so unfamiliar about rugby league, um, they weren't actually uh, following uh, the ball, but they were more sort of well. So they were following the ball as somebody would kick it. They'd actually follow where the kick was going, a bit like what you do in AFL, and sort of ignoring what was happening uh, in back play. So what would um, the uh, what would the West players do? They would actually. Um, that basically, uh, you know, throw a punch here or there and actually just destroy them. So in the end, uh, five Manly players ended up having to go by ambulance to the hospital. Oh, sorry, we're <laughs> probably going to get back into that. Yeah, but anyway, we'll, yeah, but we'll get into the match. For, but did you have any comments about that sort of build-up there, Dr. T? Well, I mean, it's an interesting story, isn't it? And like I said, a lot of this rivalry is fueled by, fueled by stories and, and look much like the... Uh, uh, the the current Netflix series uh, Tiger King, a lot of a lot of, a lot of it is about who who do you believe? Uh, you know, mm. you know, and and so if you if you listen carefully to the story, if you listen to the way Roy Masters concocted, uh, you know, this siege mentality, uh, you know, obviously we know that that you know even if some of the manly players would have made some disparaging comments. I mean, that's not unusual. I mean, you know, get a bunch of blokes together, they're going to they're gonna stir each other up a bit, but potentially. Uh, but when you look at the series of events that happen, the bus, the hotel, the comments, you put all that together, I mean, and, and remembering that this was a side that was already kind of the, uh, the, the best side of the 70s, pretty much. Uh, you know, it was kind of like the Melbourne Storm... Uh, of the time, you know, it, 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 everyone was gunning to to cut down the, the tall poppy that was manly. Um, you add to that, there is already a class difference between the western suburbs of Sydney and the very rich peninsula of manly. And you've got all the ingredients for like a powder keg waiting to go off. And all Roy <laughs> Masters needed to do for a side that, you know, a team that needed a bit of inspiration and motivation was to plant that seed and to suggest that, you know, all of these things that happened, seemingly random coincidences, you know, uh, the the hotel, the players being moved from one hotel to the other, the filling up the bus first, 
<laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, all of it in his in his way of, uh, of concocting this siege mentality, uh, you know, planting that seed of doubt. He made it look like it was like a big conspiracy theory. You know, the reason why this has happened, fellas, is because they look down on us. So mm. let's get in there and get back at them. Uh, and, you know, a bit of a stroke of genius <laughs> in a way, but also the an, a great way to start a rivalry, <laughs> you know, whether it's lies or whether it's embellishing the truth and creating a bit of a conspiracy, uh, a bit of a drama where there wasn't really a drama to begin with. Uh, you know, this is where Roy Masters uh, had a, played, played a genius role here. So, look, that's the beginning, but we are going to stick with this first match because it's such a pivotal match. Uh, but let's, let's explore it a little bit more. So tackle number two, here we go. The war begins. Tackle number two was that match that you were just alluding to. Uh, let's get into a bit more. So it was the 18th of March, 1978. You gave us the the uh, the intro and the setup for it. It was a preseason. Uh, it was preseason match, playoff for third place. It was played in Melbourne. The all of the scenes that set it up, it drove it to uh, that kind of uh, powder keg, as I said, waiting to go off. And it led to, as you said, uh, the the West players <laughs> finding any opportunity to bash and bump and bring the beef back basically um, <laughs> to uh, although when we say bring the beef back, I think these guys were the first to actually bring the beef. It looked like they That's did right. it as a, t- as a tactic. They did it deliberately to uh, throw off the opposition. So uh, yeah. let's, let's take it from there. So Tish, you've set it up beautifully. So uh, we've got five Seagulls players taken to hospital by ambulance not not a typical thing not a typical thing in an nrl or a rugby league match in the top grade yeah that's right so yes yeah, so yeah and we've got to remember this is pre-season this is before the season has even started i think it's like the week before the season so yeah so five seagulls players uh taken to the hospital every time a manly kicker dispatched the ball downfield a west the west second marga would fly in with a stiff arm and put him on his back. So that was their strategy. And obviously, you know, once something like that has occurs, and you see this in the modern game too, all the other players rush in and then there's, you know, there's argy-bargy, uh, maybe is, is another way of saying it sort of thing, happening throughout the whole game. Um, and uh, now the very important thing, it actually came, uh, came back, but uh, we didn't see any footage of this in the documentary, but... Um, there was actually footage of this game that uh, was given to the match officials at St Kilda, and um, Roy Masters does point out in uh, the the report that this might have set back, um, you know, the expansion plans of the New South Wales Rugby League into Melbourne by about ten years, uh, just with the um, sheer brutality. Of, of what the uh, St Kilda fans were witnessing that day, because um, now that's from Roy Masters' point of view, but but it is true there was a very there was a very strong reluctance uh, to actually um, move to Melbourne, even though Melbourne's kind of an easier push than it was to go to say you know Perth or Adelaide and so forth. But um, you know those two cities actually got a team before uh, Melbourne did, and I, I just wonder whether it was because of the uh, connotations of what they had witnessed. Um, 
So, look, I think after that match, I'm pretty sure there's actually no record of who actually won that match, but I believe that uh, Manly did win that match. But that's basically the strategy that Roy Master, then, um, you know, then sort of, uh, you know, the mentality was born. That Freiburg mentality, it's us versus them. Um, you know, we don't get the rub of the stick sort of thing, you know, kind of playing the victim a little bit. That's the kind of the um, mentality that Roy instilled into his team. And that's what they carried into the season. And they actually found a lot of success. So, um, you know, in the first seven rounds, they, um, you know, everybody was expecting them to run last, essentially. Um, you know, they only finished like eight the season before. I think Manly had won their first six games. And then, uh, you know, man, uh, and then uh, the Magpies had actually won. Uh, I think it was four of their four of their first seven games before these two teams had to go head to head again. So, All right. um, well, yeah, we'll pause it there because I think uh, this is where, as you said, it, this is where the rivalry starts to kind of solidify and and turn into something that is it wasn't just a one off. Uh, gimmick wasn't just a one-off trick that uh, you know an inspirational pre-game speech from the coach, uh, the new coach Roy Masters, uh, but something mm. that they took for the rest of the season. So this is how you build rivalries. Uh, is you know whatever it's based on, it it's it's got to be something that gets backed up with uh, and followed up, not just a one-off thing. Uh, you can't really build mm. a rivalry with that. It can be seen as a as a one-off, but. Um, but yeah, so there are some pivotal moments in the rivalry in that first year, 1978. So let's explore that a little further in uh, tackle number three. Here we go. All right, so pivotal moments we're going to talk about. And as you alluded to, Tish, round seven was one of the first ones after that initial game in the preseason. And round seven was, uh, as you said, Western Suburbs had, had some success, as had Manly. So it was a battle of two two informed teams, shall we say. That's right. So what yeah, ended up happening? Okay, yeah. So firstly, um, and then look, yeah, it was obviously uh, two informed teams. Manly were the, obviously, you know, the highly skilled, highly talented team, best players, internationals. I think they had a couple of Englishmen in their squad, whereas the Magpies kind of had more of the um, whoever they can get to put on a jersey um, type team. But then using this sort of siege mentality type, you know, um, getting into fights, getting into brawls in every single game they played, um, I, I think Rory Masters said that basically it would distract the other team from playing and then, uh, then they would actually beat teams with skill and that's basically what they did. But, you know, it started to create a following. So this team that was, uh, you know, that didn't have too many supporters supporting them the year before, they started coming out in droves and they started coming out into... Uh, you know, to, to watch their beloved Magpies play. And uh, the media actually started to uh, to get a hold of what, um, you know, Western Suburbs Magpies were doing. Uh, I think one of the headlines was, you know, the the battle of Lidcombe shaping like a Lulu, um, you know, so basically trying to get violence and, and sex into the headline, which was kind of very uncommon in those days. Um, but ba- basically they had a sellout crowd. I think they had 21,000... I think that's actually the ground record at that time for uh, Lidcombe Oval. Um, And there's stories of uh, basically it it became fashionable in the Western suburbs to dress down to turn up to the game. Um, So there is one report of apparently doctors who used to support Western suburbs magpies would actually 
uh, go home and, uh, you know, take off their suit, put on some tracky dance and a beanie and head down to Lidcom Oval to watch um, the Magpies play or else they might be accused of being a silver tail. So, um, you know, it was kind of a, a very, uh, you know, it, it's like the whole area embraced them. So, um, you know, before the game, Roy Masters, uh, you know, trying to get his team stirred up again, he, te- he tells off uh, Prop John Donnelly uh, in the dressing room, um, basically questioning, uh, you know, why did he drink eight schooners at the railway hotel the night before this game? And then he grabbed his finger and started stabbing his finger on um, John Donnelly's chest in front of everybody, sort of invading his personal sp- uh, space, screaming at him. And, uh, you know, John actually makes that comment, uh, you know how I'm going to uh, deal with it after one minute of the game, basically. And then so within the first tackle, about 30 seconds into the game, John Donnelly instigates a brawl <laughs> between the players and uh, the whole game is littered with illegal scrappy play from both ends. Uh, eventually, uh, one play from Manly actually uh, you know, gets sent off. And, um, and uh, you know, Western Suburbs Magpies win that game 13 points to seven. So they defeat the undefeated um, Manly uh, Warringah Sea Eagles for the first time that season. And, uh, you know, obviously the underdog gets up in this game and... Um, but obviously, the New South Wales uh, Rugby League wasn't very happy about this game, and for the first time, and I believe it's actually a world in world history, world sporting history, um, video evidence is actually used to suspend two West players um, for illegal play, uh, which is a very you know pivotal point in uh, sort of rugby league history in ter- in terms of uh, world uh, sport history because it's the first time ever that you're actually superseding the refs, the referee's judgment. The referee didn't see these actions, but these actions were caused on videotape, which actually gave a, a higher authority above the referee for sport. And I think that moment, once it's kind of like we've opened that, uh, you know, Pandora's box that day in 1978, and since then, um, you know, it, we've find it ha- hard to give referees that power again. So uh, any thoughts about that first game there, Dr. T? Yeah, look, a great summary. I think uh, you've basically it sounds like that, you know, Roy's uh, little seed that he planted has started to bear some fruit um, mm. in, uh, in the early part of the season and where, you know, again, if you're going to set the tone for your tilt at a premiership, you want to you want to do that at a point where you kind of uh, you show that you can take on the best, defeat the best, but also do it at a pivotal moment, uh, you know, to show that there's a bit of a changing of the guard, and that's sort of what it looked like. You know, West had been sort of developing and growing. They, they had the media behind them, the growing crowd because of what's been happening, and and the the whole Fibro Silvertail story. Uh, it pitted the underdog the Magpies against Manly Warringah as the, as the elitist rich club on the the beaches, the Eastern beaches of <laughs> Sydney and Eastern Northern beaches of Sydney, you know, and, and certainly, I mean, there was, a, I think it was, it wasn't that Roy created that, um, the underlying class differences. I think what he did is it just exploited them 
for the purpose of basically getting his players motivated. So, uh, and it and it worked because you know within, like I said, the, by round seven you had seen uh, the well whether it was top of the table at the time or not, but it was definitely it was definitely a, a, a flag that was planted by Western Suburbs to say we're here and we're serious contenders. And so, look, if anything. Uh, you know, you call it beginner's luck or whatever, even though they, they kind of, uh, uh, you know, took a while and they weren't necessarily top of the table because they hadn't won every game. But by defeating the undefeated team at the time, uh, you know, using this mentality, using this siege mentality, it sort of reinforces that it's a su- successful strategy. And I think, if anything, it also elevates Roy Masters' kind of genius uh, and, and what you'll get is hopefully, you know, when things like that happen, you'll get players uh, realising that, you know, their coach is really, you know, his tactics are really working. Um, But, yeah, so that was an interesting kind of uh, pivotal moment, in a way, a turning point in in the premiership of that year. It certainly, uh, uh, it put Manly on notice, let's put it that way. So, but there are other things that happened as well. So do you want to explore some of those other pivotal moments? Yes, exactly. So, so um, I did mention that there were two worst players that were suspended after video footage. So, um, sorry, I forgot to put this in my in my notes. But what what had happened is that one of the players was uh, Les Boyd, and um, he was suspended. And uh, at that in those days, he was suspended for something. I mean, it was kind of a shock that that was suspended because they didn't have any video footage. Uh, so they were suspended because of not what the referee saw but basically what the camera had had sort of shown. Um, and uh, when he was suspended, he had no – there was no judiciary system. So he was just basically suspended without being able to voice his uh, appeal or voice his, uh, you know, uh, basically appeal uh, appeal his sentence sort of thing. Uh, and he actually sued the New South Wales Rugby League um, for unlawful, uh, you know, unlawful practices, I think was the term or something like that. So Les Boyd does that, and then so the New South Wales Rugby League, um, after getting the notice of being sued by one of their players, decides to actually uh, decides to actually um, have a hearing now. So they have the hearing, and then they basically um, heard his side of the argument. Um, he had uh, Les Boyd had the witness. His witness was the player that he allegedly, uh, I think it was stomped on 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 the head. And the player said, no, he, you know, it was an accident sort of thing. But they still uh, suspended him for the exact same number of games as well. So in the end, it didn't, it didn't do anything to Les. But look, that was another little part of, um, you know, this is another part that, that this match sort of changed. You know, now players are saying, you know, we, we just don't want to be suspended just because, you, you know, we want to be heard. We want to be you know, basically, we want to be able to, to fight what you guys are alleging we have done. Um, so that's one thing the New South Wales Rugby League reacted to this match. The other thing that they did is they got really concerned about the refereeing of these games. And, um, you know, they try to went around the, the referees' ranks and they try to look for referees who could try to get the law in order sort of thing. And they wanted referees that would sort of be able to sort of... Uh, well, in their minds, thought that they could control the game a lot better. So they'd recently demoted referee Greg Hartley to reserve grade. But after this uh, round seven cl- uh, clash in round eight, you know, re- Greg Hartley goes from reserve grade and gets promoted to um, the first grade. 
And, uh, you know, he actually, you know, as the season concludes, he actually starts to referee a lot of the top games. In the end, he gets ranked as the top referee of the game. And basically, you know, all the major games towards the end of the season, including the remaining West versus Manly games, the preliminary final and the grand final, Greg Hartley, um, Greg Hartley does actually referee. And obviously, Dr. T, you probably have heard the name Greg Hartley before. A lot of listeners have heard that. He is uh, infamous in many ways about some of the refereeing decisions he made in 1978. And it's interesting how this particular match between Western Sea Eagles was actually the catalyst to get him into first grade. Wow. I mean, that's that's another very interesting kind of anecdote and uh, little dimension to this story, uh, to this rivalry that... that <laughs> gets forgotten and and basically yeah like, so this rivalry basically gave birth to uh greg hartley who's widely considered one of the most biased referees <laughs> of the time <laughs> but uh well not not really i mean this is sort of anecdotally uh but mm. but really the reason the reason for it is interesting it's it's because i guess he showed that he was able to take control of of a match and stamp his authority on it. So really, the this whole uh, you know the West taking matters into their own hands, bringing in the Biff, led to the advent of uh, the an uh, increased importance of the referee being able to control the match, and yeah. and especially at this top level. And and in a way, it kind of catapulted the referee to a celebrity. Status and usually, you know, what is that old saying about referees? Are, uh, uh, you know, their best uh, unseen and unheard. That's when you know when it's a good game when they just let the the game flow. But when you've got a referee with a bit of an ego and and uh, it kind of, I mean, I'm not suggesting he has, but that's the perception that that was out there. Uh, you know, it changes the flavor of the match. It changes the flavor of the sport as a spectacle and. Uh, and the fact that these two stories are interlinked is is very interesting. Yeah, definitely a causal yeah. thing uh, that one led to another, and and you can see why because by taking matters into their own hands, the West uh, Magpies uh, basically you know gave birth to the need to have a referee who could take control and who wouldn't put up with uh, with all that rubbish in the game and and just get on with actually refereeing the game and and getting you know giving people what they want which is an actual game of football as opposed to a uh you know the potential to see their players uh you know go into hospital because they were bashed i mean i mean all jokes aside it just goes to show if you uh if you kind of uh inspire uh, a bunch of uh you know athletes uh who are very strong uh you know in a very very masculine kind of rough game um you're already pushing them over the edge with the amount of testosterone that they've got running through their veins and and uh you're gonna have have some damage happening and it's uh, it's not a good thing so um yeah definitely interesting sort of little dimension there that the uh the rise of the uh of the celebrity kind of referee Referee, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, look, um, moving on to their second game of the season, this time at Brookvale, round 18. Um, by that stage, Western Suburbs Magpies, you know, you know, they're on top of the ladder, they're doing well, 
Um, they've got huge crowds every every week to see them. And they actually get a major sponsor, which is Victor Mowers. So the Victor, Victor Motor Mowing Comp, uh, which is an Australian invention, you know, sponsors the West uh, Magpies. And it's a, it's a very iconic jersey, the Western Suburbs Magpies jersey with, with, the, Victor, uh, with the Victor logo on it. Uh, Greg Hartley is appointed around 18, um, match of the round um, sort of a referee for this game. And um, this time at Brookvale, Manly actually win 16 points to 10. Um, again, this match, you know, brawls happening left, right, and center. Um, you know, Manly report uh, before this game that they could hear the uh, West players revving themselves up, slapping themselves in the face. Um, and we've actually got footage of that, which you could see on the on the documentary, and it looks absolutely crazy. Um, I know that one of the players does tell a story where you you didn't want to uh, you didn't want to uh, I think the player is Dennis or something like you didn't want to uh, draw Dennis because he would actually hit you for real, and um, I think <laughs> one of the players actually admits that um, uh, you know their their sort of goal kicker I think admits to um, actually. Uh, you know, getting a black eye in the change room while they were doing the slapping. And another <laughs> place said that he was in tears before he ran out to the game. I, look, I don't know if that's being hyperbole, but uh, <laughs> but you will, you look at that footage and you think, uh, wow, that's like they were going at it, hammer and tongs. Uh, you know, one of the interesting things, uh, and you notice this in the documentary, and I'll, and I'll bring this up now, is that um, before this game, they talk about how, you know, um, Roy Master says, you know, um, you know, every week when I was given this rhetoric, you know, I was, you know, it was a good way to motivate my team. That I always had full of energy every time I'd bring up, you know, the us versus them mentality. They had so much energy, and it really did something to them. But I had some players that were like, you know, could see through me a little bit, and they said that like they know that it's not really as bad as what you make it, but you know. I do still use it to try to get myself motivated. Uh, but then you hear all the players uh, actually, um, you know, being interviewed. And a lot of these players still believe everything the Roy Masters have told them. Um, so the thing is, uh, it's it's very interesting how, uh, you know, Roy Masters himself does kind of say that, you know, I was being a bit over the top. But a lot of players that he was uh, instilling this onto still have that, um, you know, that, you know, yeah, it was. It there was a class divide there. Yes, it, you know the the New South Wales Rugby League was against us. Yes, Greg Hartley, you know, was wasn't giving us the fair decisions and so forth. So, um, very very interesting. So, um, preliminary final comes around. So at the end of the season, um, you know, West actually f- finish up as minor premiers um, in nineteen seventy eight. That's the last time the West Magpies actually finish the minor, minor premiers. Um, and the the previous time they did that was in 1961, so almost uh, almost two decades before having that type of success. Um, they move into the final series. They lose their first game to the Sharks. Um, the Sharks then, you know, obviously get that grand final berth. Um, and then, uh, you know, the the week before, um, Parramatta and Manly play, and this is the infamous miscount from Greg Hartley, where he counts a seven tackle set. Which I'm sure you uh, have are familiar with, their Doctor T. <laughs> um, and then this game comes around, and this is another controversial game at the SCG. Um, Manly win 14 points to seven, knocking the Magpies out of the season. 
Um, now, there were two West tries that were disallowed um, halfway towards the second half, which would have given them the victory. And uh, according to Rory Masters, once those two uh, once those two sort of decisions went against the Magpies, the side itself kind of capitulated. Um, they felt that, you know, there was a, a grave injustice and they could never beat the man, never beat the system. And as a result, you know, he didn't really see that effort that he saw the team put in throughout the whole year. So, and and the other thing they talk about is how they, they sort of used to playing all their games at, in the suburban grounds. And now they're playing at the SCG. It's a much bigger stadium. It's a much bigger stage. And maybe for a team that always had that underdog tag, um, playing in their first final series in such a long time, uh, maybe wasn't the, um, you know, maybe there was something that he himself didn't prepare his side to to be able to battle with. So those are the four games that happened uh, between these uh, between these clubs in 1978. But it was a rivalry, a, a fierce competition in 1978. And I think it really really set the stage for some other things. Uh, any comments there, Dr. T? Uh, yeah, look, some great, <laughs> great little anecdotes that you described there. But I think the key thing is that, you know, there were four matches that year and West really only won one of them as far as we know. Uh, and... And uh, it didn't really help them because uh, Manly ended up winning the premiership, even though they were the minor premiers. But as you said, the, it all comes together. You know, the tries that were disallowed, um, you know, Greg Hartley being the referee, the rise of Greg Hartley, a direct result of, uh, of you know, the, the tactics employed by West Magpies, uh, to kind of rattle their opposition and, and just be basically psyched themselves up so much that they they basically went out there on a mission and on a in almost like they were in, in a military way you know mm. in, you know waiting to kill that kind of thing uh, and it ended up biting them because the the very referee that they gave rise to ended up uh, you know disallowing <laughs> the tries um, that could have put them into the grand final for the first time in a long long time. And, you know, and the, the, the key thing there as well is what you just said, which is that, that the, the momentum that they had received, uh, you know, with, with uh, all the success earlier on in the year and, uh, and by employing these tactics ended up kind of working against them because once the chips were down, um, they, it kind of, I mean, there's a there's a phrase for that which is self fulfilling prophecy. If you start thinking that the world is mm. against you, then at at even the smallest sign that something is going yeah. against you, you'll start to think that the world is against you. So then, what you start to do is your world starts caving in, and it actually you know ends up overwhelming you and becoming uh, a, 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 mm. an albatross to your performance you end up kind of failing because of it. So, you know, <laughs> what a fascinating year. I mean, all those things, all that story, the ups and downs, basically summarise very well there. But, look, uh, let's let's move on to some, some of the, uh, you know, unpacking a little bit more of this rivalry. Uh, so let's go to tackle number four, shall we? So... Look, I think we've already talked about some of the uh, the where the rivalry came to a head, and and I think we've we've seen that in that first year, uh, we you know even though the 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 battle continued, 
you know, 78 we're talking about. The battle continued still for a few more years, uh, but the history, the short history of this uh, Western Magpie Fibro Silvertails battle came to an unusual head at the beginning of the 1980 season. Uh, season. Uh, so the New South Wales Rugby League, uh, you know, anxious to avoid the typical Manly West bloodbaths that had happened for several years, um, drew the two teams to meet at Lidcombe on 20th of April. Uh, this is despite the fact that, you know, some of the Magpies players, in fact, three former Magpies players had moved across to Manly. So <laughs> this kind of adds a little more spice to the uh, yeah. to the rivalry. Um, and, you know, like whichever way you look at it. And it's funny because when we spoke about the Bulldogs and the Eels rivalry, you know, we talked about, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll see if, if this applies to some of the other rivalries that we'll talk about in future. But, you know, with the Bulldogs and Eels rivalry, you had, you know, the formation of the rivalry at the beginning, you know, in the 80s, uh, the the success of the two teams at different approaches, various reasons for that. And and then and then there was kind of nothing, <laughs> you know. Then then one one of the teams kind of fell away. In this case, it would be West fall fallen away in terms of success. Uh, Manly still going strong, but then you know in around the Super League war, what happened with the Bulldogs and Eels was, of course, you had that big schism and the realignment of the the clubs in Sydney. Some of the clubs, or most of the Sydney clubs, aligning with ARL, and three of the Sydney clubs, uh, Bulldogs being one of them, aligning with the Super League. And so, what ended up happening was, as both organisations signed up players, in the end, some of the players that were in, uh, you know, were, were aligned with Super League clubs that had signed with Super League, but were signed themselves under contract by the ARL needed a club to go to. And so what ended up happening was the probably one of the biggest and most high profile switches of uh, of of a player group probably in 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 history in in recent history definitely which was basically uh, you know I think they called them at the time the awesome foursome or something like that but really it was uh, was it Dean Pay, Jared McCracken, who was the other one? Jim Dimmick and Jim Dimmick, uh, Jason yeah. Jason Smith. And uh, yep. and so and those four were critical to the Eels' uh, resurgence at that time because they they kind of uh, weren't really going anywhere as a club and hadn't tasted the success of the '80s. So so if you look at it as an Eels fan, you think, great, we poached four of their players, uh, but the reality was they were on the market because they had no club to go to, uh, having aligned with a different organisation. And then you look at the eels, the the from a Canterbury side, and you might think, as a Canterbury fan, you might think those th- that team stole our four players, not realizing that of course that you didn't sign the players to your league. Of course, they had somewhere to, they needed to go somewhere, but the fact that all four of them went at once makes it really obvious and kind of adds a bit of an exclamation point to the rivalry. So back to the Manly West thing. You know, it's a similar kind of thing where you've got, um, you know, this this rivalry and uh, it's been formed in 1978. You've got West kind of, you know, going a bit downhill. And then you've got, you know, the continued animosity 
between the teams. But then you've got three players switching to your rivals. I mean, that kind of adds the exclamation point, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's very, you know, interesting that it's followed a similar pattern to the uh, Bulldogs and Canterbury uh, and, and the Eels kind of uh, rivalry as well. But anyway, um, you know, so anyway, back to the, the 1980 season uh, opening match, Manly West, uh, Lidcombe, 20 April, Three of the Magpies players had switched to the Sea Eagles. Uh, as you said, the thing with Lidcombe is the uh, the crowd. The crowds were were rising. It was a popular ground uh, and and a bit of a cauldron for opposition teams. So when those teams ran out, there was a it was a there was a massive roar, massive chorus of boos. Uh, booze, not not booze, booze, as in drink booze, but <laughs> <laughs> although there was probably lots of that as well. But um, you know, the 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 booze of the auditory uh, variety, <laughs> the vocal variety, uh, you know, echoed around the ground, and uh, um, you know, basically you had uh, Dallas Donnelly on the sideline, uh, you know making comments against the silver tails saying that with uh, you know what a west team with two internationals which is basically himself and goodwin uh they were going to you know they were going to give it to manly's 10 internationals and uh you know and it worked because uh you know the game was played in the typical kind of uh rageful uh you know way that west had approached these games uh, and uh, basically, there's, there's a there's an anecdote where Ray Brown of the of the Manly team walked over in a conciliatory way uh, at the beginning of the match to um, to to the West players, and uh, basically Alan Neal and Dallas uh, told Ray Brown uh, to piss off. Basically, so it wasn't <laughs> you know. All those, you know, where where you saw rugby league as a, you know, the gentlemanly kind of thing of the past, where at the end of the day the players can go and have a beer together. This was not the situation with this rivalry. I mean, there was definite hatred between these two teams. But as you said before, it all came from West. It it came mainly from the West side. And uh, mm. and look, that seems to have worked on this occasion because uh, West won this game uh, nineteen to four, and uh, uh, you know, basically as uh, the as the teams left the field, as a manly team left the field, uh, and uh, the West faithful were booing them and uh, making all sorts of. Uh, comments to the Manly players as they were leaving the field. Uh, Ken Arthurson, Arco, uh, basically called the West, uh, the entire West fraternity ungracious. Uh, you know, so again, wow. that kind of fuels the kind of thing of you guys are heathens, you guys are lowly, uh, you know, you guys are grubs, that kind of thing. You're ungracious. You know, what happened to the gentleman's kind of way of playing the game and so really, Manly didn't know what hit them. Uh, you know, the the idea of the the level of hatred that West brought was, uh, I think it's fair to say, it was a level above anything else that had ever been been seen. Uh, and it's kind of ironic that you know that was the year that we saw the very first State of Origin match, which is 
again, yeah. the, the transferal of hatred from uh, club to the uh, the state level, uh, representative level, and uh, you know where where Queensland pretty much, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that you know a lot of that hatred which seemed to bear a lot of fruits and success for West, you know, maybe there's an element, there's an argument to be made that uh, you know the Queenslanders took an element of that and thought, well, you know, maybe. Maybe we can be the underdog. We we see ourselves as the underdog. Sydney, you know, always looks down on us. Uh, you know, they've got a much more more popular competition, club competition. Uh, they steal, they poach our players, all that kind of yeah. stuff. Again, uh, look, I, I think it's something that should be uh, acknowledged or researched a little bit more. But I think I think it's fair to say that uh, that a fair theory is that. The, if it weren't for what Wes did with uh, creating this kind of uh, myth of uh, the the fibros and the silver tails and, and this rivalry, uh, we wouldn't have seen uh, it translate to the state of origin arena. In fact, we wouldn't have seen state of origin at all at the level of success that we've seen over the the past few decades. So unbelievable. But yeah, as as the game back to the game as the rivalry uh you know i guess it dissipated a little bit that year despite the fact that west west won uh you know it, it you saw manly kind of uh uh not see the same level of success that they had seen during the 70s mm. so as the new decade the 80s uh, began uh they weren't going to achieve a uh a premiership for uh well, throughout the whole eighties, in fact, well, until the eighty-seven. I, I apologise. Eighty-seven. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so for most of the eighties, they they took a back seat to the great Canterbury and Parramatta teams, which we've talked about in our other rivalry uh, podcast. So, um, yeah. So yeah. So again, uh, uh, the formula of uh, you know, basically emotion fueled rage. <laughs> to be to drive the western suburbs magpies to success uh b- being perceived as being disrespected by the elite manly team the elitism of the manly team and uh and add to that that flavor of uh of the uh the socio-economic disadvantage of the western suburbs of sydney and uh and really what we saw is yeah, this basically a period at that time of where the rivalry was at its peak, and obviously since then uh, we've seen uh, nothing of the same level, I think. But we're going to unpack a little bit more in the last two tackles of this. Uh, you know what this rivalry means and and other ways to look at it. So let's let's go to tackle number five to discuss a little bit of the impact of this rivalry. So here we go, tackle number five. All right, so tackle number five, and look, you know, we saw, uh, as you said earlier, that the crowd started to come back to to the to Lidcombe Oval to support Western Suburbs, despite the fact that they were, uh, you know, it was a, a, a socially more disadvantaged area of Sydney compared to other areas of Sydney. Uh, they certainly latched onto this underdog tag. But that that kind of led to an increase in interest from uh, from their supporters. So um, you know, uh, basically the and the other thing that was interesting there's an interesting story 
about how um, the uh, the the fans really took the Fibros and Silvertails thing to heart. So there's an example of, uh, again, some of this, these are anecdotes from Roy Master's talk, as we said at the beginning. So uh, I'll do my best to kind of summarise his anecdote without losing any of the any of the uh, the flavour of what he was saying. But look, basically he was saying that he uh, there was one example of a, a pharmacist from Ashfield who left his chemist shop at noon on Saturdays, drove home, took off his coat and tie, wore a boiler suit to Lidcombe and carried two narrow slats of fibro uh, <laughs> nailed, nailed at the bottom of one end. And you kind of think, what does that mean? Well, he stood on the hill, this guy, he held the fibro pieces in front of him and whenever they scored a try, he opened them to a V. <laughs> so, look, I mean, that's... That kind of story is pretty funny and it kind of tells you, look, you've got people who, you know, even though they're well-to-do and, you know, this guy's a pharmacist, but yet he dressed up like as if he was a wor- more working class, if you know what I mean, and yeah. uh, and, and took the fire, pieces of fibro because, you know, they were the fibros and, and he did it in such a way. Again, he was playing a character almost of um, – of a socially disadvantaged working class man in <laughs> in Sydney, which is really fascinating because that just shows you the impact of labelling people, mm. <laughs> labelling groups, and and uh, especially when they get success, so they they start to kind of uh, own it, and uh, yeah, you know, and and so that's the thing. And and, he, and this guy said to Roy, and this is Roy recounting it, quote, for a long time I had a piece of fibro, about six inches by two inches. A fan gave it to me. I don't know why I kept it, but it seemed to have symbolized something. <laughs> so, again, <laughs> this is the thing. Even in a block of wood, pretty much, a uh, block of fibro, you, you've got, you know, you've got people instilling a bit of soul into that and a bit of uh, rage and, and meaning into something that's yeah. an inanimate object. So, uh, um, so yeah, that's one example. And look, the other example of, uh, the impact of the rivalry is that, and the impact of label labels in any case is that, um, you know, you start, people start to kind of believe the hype. And, mm. and so the other story that, that, uh, Roy Masters talks about is, is basically of, uh, um, you know, walking into the offices, uh, of, uh, well, basically, he said, look, they didn't really get many opportunities in terms of sponsorship. So when they were looking for a sponsor, uh, they basically, uh, you know, he walked into the offices of uh, James Hardy and he explained why they were known as the Fire Bros. It was a material that they produce. So I guess he thought this is going to be a given that the makers of Fire Bros, of Fibro material, would be jumping to you know, jumping sponsor, out of their yeah. seats to sponsor West and and really kind of get that you know because it was obviously the meaning and the purpose of their organisation was connected to this, um, but that wasn't to be because uh, the manager at the time uh, abused him, pointing out that fibre was excellent building material and there were fibre homes in uh, you know in nice suburbs. So how dare you associate it with a working class team and uh wow. and basically look they they were kicked out of uh of the room and not long later james hardy announced 
a sponsorship with Parramatta, of course, which was also look in any in many cases. I guess you could you could say it was even further west of 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 western suburbs, which was based <laughs> yeah. in. So you know, in many ways, Ashfield Lidcombe time, yeah, yeah, that's right. Even if they were, you say they were based at Lidcombe, although you know emanating from Ashfield originally, to 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 sponsor a team from Parramatta which uh, admittedly even though it was a growing kind of CBD in in itself in Sydney and has been for, for those decades since then. But really it was, uh, you know, the, and it was a critical sponsorship because, uh, you know, it, at the time uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, James Hardy basically uh, latching onto a, a team that ended up finding its first success. So, you know, from one Western suburbs powerhouse to another, uh, it ended up being Parramatta that ended up taking the reins of the most successful Western Sydney uh, team uh, in the 80s. So something that Western suburbs magpies could have achieved and, uh, you know, w- were, you know, could have achieved but didn't quite get there. So, uh, so yeah, that's one kind of aspect. And, look, another another aspect of the... Uh, of the rivalry and and an impact is uh, uh, you know was basically you look at even a century you know half a quarter of a century later uh, you know uh, look let, let me just back up a bit so as you said Manly didn't really uh, partake in much of this rivalry you know they they were kind of um, again that kind of fed the elitism aloofness. Yeah kind of uh, perception it's like we hate you uh wes would say but but why don't you pay attention to us so there was a bit of a (laughs) power imbalance going on and you know and look why would you if you are the the object of hatred (laughs) you know why would you uh buy into that i can see why you wouldn't want to but look i think after a bit of time after the rage has died down after people have grown up I think now what's happened is that you've got a lot of the manly, manly faithful, manly fans that have uh, have kind of you know taken that term "silver tails" to heart, and so there's an example of a box uh, at at Brookvale Oval named the Silver Tails. Uh, it, there's an example of uh, uh, an unofficial manly website which is headed the Silver Tails. So you've got you know. It's not just it's the label that eventually has has come to be owned by by the manly team by the manly faithful, but but not necessarily uh, again because it started in a derogatory way. Uh, the term silver tails, uh, you know, it it basically uh, it took a while, but eventually, like I said, over time the rage dies down, and I think people who weren't really there weren't witness to what happened and, and the uh, during that time in the late 70s and early 80s uh, when the rivalry was formed and when it reached its peak, um, you know, eventually, yeah, they, they would uh, – uh, the, the label has come to own, be owned by people uh, who have uh, – who perhaps don't realise, ironically, that it was meant to be a derogatory term against them. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but, yeah, the other impact of the rivalry, I guess, is uh, – as you said, you talked about the face slapping thing, which again, uh, I think the impact of that was uh, it kind of shows 
it shows how it added a bit of uh, a bit of spice, but definitely it you know it was reported at the time as showing how crazy West West and in fact even nowadays you can see footage of people uh, you know people show footage of Tommy Radonikus and others slapping each other before getting into before going out into a match and and people look at it and think wow those guys are crazy especially if you try to show some Americans who have never seen rugby league before. Um, it really does sort of add an element of a mythology of, wow, these guys at the time were really, really into it. And, and, uh, uh, and again, that's all come down to this rivalry and all that uh, rage that uh, Roy Masters was able to, to tap into. So, so Tish, uh, is there anything you wanted to add to this before we look towards uh, unpacking it a little bit more? Oh, well, look, I think, um, you know, one of the players who has said something from the Manly end is actually Max Krilich. And I think he always makes, uh, you know, a famous line. I've heard it a couple of times before. We kind of says, uh, well, um, you know, we were they were calling us, uh, you know, the Silver Tales. We weren't Silver Tales. We were living in five row houses as well. Um, so that's kind of <laughs> ironic how sort of, um, you know, probably in the Manly area, there's probably lots of five row houses themselves. Um uh, and uh, you know, they, they live there. But, you know, for, for, for their point of view, I think from the manly side of things, I mean, you're right. Why do they need to sort of necessarily entertain this? For them, you know, they've had three premierships. They went on to win their fourth one, and now they're actually, you know, doing, uh, you know, you know they're, they're sort of a, you know, a, a sort of a glamour club sort of thing. Um, you know, with West, it's, uh, you know, they weren't able to sustain that 1978 run, Um they finished by the premiers. They they didn't do too much too much later, to the point where in 1983, you know, they lost their sponsorship again, and they were kicked out of the competition and had to get had to take the New South Wales Rugby League to court just to stay uh, to be kept alive. So, um, you know, it, while they had great community support, while they did something that was, you know, really kind of unique and and, and very much ahead of its time, just the strategy and tactic, you know. Uh, we talked the bring back the Biff, but I actually wonder how much of the Biff was actually in rugby league before the Magpies. I think they're kind of the uh, innovators of, of this type of um, siege mentality uh, type approach to a game. You know, when you're the underdog, when you probably don't feel as if you've got match the team in skill or success, you uh, you know you sort of revert to more of a you know, more of a sort of, um, you know, uh, us versus them mentality and, a, you know, sort of play more with emotion and less on, you know, uh, on, on sort of skill. And that's what proved success for them. But, yeah, kind of a bit tragic that, that actually the Magpies weren't able to su- sustain um, this growth, uh, well, you know, that they had in 1978. Uh, but very, very fascinating nevertheless. Yeah, and we'll unpack a little bit a little bit further in our last tackle. So here we go, tackle number six. The great rivalry lives on. All right, so it's been uh, you know forty years, <laughs> pretty much since since wow. the advent of uh, over forty years since the advent of this uh, this rivalry. Uh, I think it's fair to say that it hasn't it hasn't been the only rivalry of this nature. In, amongst Sydney teams, so I think we need to unpack that a little bit. But uh, before I do, I, I think what, I just wanted to give a couple of very interesting kind of little bits and pieces and get your thoughts on each. So the first one was, and you did mention Max Krilich's comment at the time, 
that which was you know we we in Manly also live in fibro houses, so it's got nothing to do with the fibro thing. And it's interesting as well that um, you know that it wasn't necessarily uh, you know he didn't see it as a class thing, uh, but but really you know we've if you look at nowadays a lot of those players who live who played for west represented west in those years uh they uh, there's a group of them about 28 former first graders that now live on the peninsula and call themselves fibros so you know it's kind of uh even though the fact that they live in manly they still kind of they still kind of see themselves as part of the enemy within kind of thing. Um, you know, they, even though they're living in Manly, they're not really a part of Manly uh, because they've still got West in their hearts and, and the Western suburbs of Sydney in their hearts. And, and so I guess that's, that's kind of the, the strength of, of the labels is, uh, is, is still felt to this day. I think that's a really great example of how the players still, you know, really take so much ownership of that, uh, that label that uh, they take it with them wherever they go, even if it happens to be in the heart of their self-professed enemies and arch enemies, manly. Um, you know, so that's an interesting uh, like little tidbit there. So I think I just wanted to unpack that just a little bit with you. You know, in terms of this rivalry, um, you know, obviously that kind of show, shows us, Tish, that, you know, we've got people who uh, – you know, really take these things to heart wherever they go. And you don't really get that much anymore in the modern game uh, mm. where, uh, you know, where, where players really identify with their club. Um, yeah. It is much more of a business now. Uh, I really doubt that you'll – you do have some examples though. And I think uh, – like, can you think of some examples where we know players have really, you know, throughout their career trajectory – modern players like ones that are still around today or have recently retired where you, you've been following their career and you think, you know, this person has expressed that, yeah, they really still have this club and this area in their heart, no matter where they go. Um, you know, I can think of an mm. example, like for instance, you know, in the decades since then, one great example for me is Brad Fittler. I mean, Brad Fittler was a Penrith boy. You know, if you're talking about the west of Sydney, what was considered western suburbs of Sydney, I mean, it it moved from Lidcombe to Parramatta all the way out to Penrith, the foot of the mountains. Uh, you know, that's all considered western Sydney, even though it's a huge expanse of land. Um, you know, what was considered west of Sydney as Sydney sprawled and grow, grew, uh, expanded, but look, Brad Fittler, uh, a child prodigy, teenage prodigy of the game, found his initial success in Penrith, and then you know at the height of his powers, switched to the eastern suburbs, uh, the Roosters, and delivered them success as well, and has been you know pretty much a you know coached the Roosters all sorts of things as well. So he's been pretty much. Uh, a good example of how, you know, some a player has gone from one kind of class of club to another, perceived class of, uh, you know, an elitist club, which is what the Roosters are perceived as, and yet still has this kind of 
Westy mentality, if you look at his behaviour, you certainly wouldn't think he was a latte sipping, uh, <laughs> you know, double bay kind of uh, player. He's a Westy through and through. And so in the way he talks, the way he acts, um, you know, a, a, an unrefined Eastern suburbsite. <laughs> so, so, you know, that's a good example. But can you think of other examples of where players have, uh, you know, taken a little bit of their identity with them no matter where they go as they go from one club to another? Do you have any examples that you can think of? Yeah, well, um, that's very interesting. I think um, I think the type of thing you're talking about, I've seen it prevalent with sort of the teams outside of Sydney these days. Um, you know, for example, you know, you sort of look at Jonathan Thurston, you know, he's the North Queensland boy, right? You know what I mean? Same with, I suppose, Jason Tamalolo now. You don't see these guys ever leaving um, their clubs. And when they talk about their clubs, they kind of have uh, a loyalty to their area. Uh, you sort of say, see the same thing with Brisbane and so forth. With the players that kind of move around and when they sort of go from like a... Um, now, I feel like it's almost happened the other way at the moment where, uh, you know, you kind of get, uh, you know, you sort of get like, you know, somebody who's playing at that Elisa's club, you know, say the Roosters or Melbourne, and then this player, when they sort of leave that place, they want to join a club that's a bit more sort of um, under underdogish. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. for example, you kind of had that with, well, you kind of didn't know that with Cooper. He went from elitist to elitist, right? But yeah, it's kind of a bit like the Latrell Mitchell uh, situation a little bit, right? They've kind of got. He's kind of gone from, um, you know, he's gone from the big glamour club to a club that's kind of, you know, still got a, a huge following, but has got more of a, a, a more of a community sense to them in South Sydney, um, and you can kind of see yeah. sort of how he's, you know, you know, at, you know, in, in at. At the Roosters, the way people used to talk about uh, Latrell Mitchell at the Roosters, it's almost like he's the you know the greatest uh, rugby league prodigy that's ever existed, sort of thing. And now you know they're sort of talking about somebody who is you know lacking motivation, you know you know detriment to society, and kind of you know just the way the media sort of uh, you know just the media that the way people react to Latrell not being at that club anymore. It's kind of it's kind of interesting how that kind of has changed. So, yeah, so I think it has changed the way you said I don't think there's a modern-day Brad Fittler that I could sort of think of. Do you, sorry, you said you had a player in mind that is kind of like that or? Yeah, look, I, look, I had some that I was thinking about, but I think by raising Latrell Mitchell, that was a very interesting – that's a very interesting parallel, I think, that that in a way the, uh, the club – the club's perceived kind of uh, elitism, you know, led them to kind of latch onto behavioural yeah. aspects of players and kind of, I mean, they kind of hounded him out of the club in a way. And so has the media. Yeah. And and it's a shame, but it's actually very pertinent that you raise that, Tish, because that's actually probably one of the defining moments in terms of what's been happening this year, especially with the the COVID-related kind of indiscretions that, that himself and some of the other players have got involved mm. in. It seems that all the attention has been on Latrell Mitchell. And and I think you're right. A lot of it has to do with this nuanced kind of interrelationship between his own personal, you know, dramas that he's going through, 
but also the fact that the club itself kind of uh, almost disowned him in a way. Yeah. And disowned him in a, in the sense that you're right, behaviorally they were kind of thinking, well, yeah, he's not kind of behaving in the way that we would expect from someone, you know, is behaving almost too too much like a fibro to use that the terminology. Not a silver tail anymore, too much of a fibro. Uh, and too much for us to handle. We we don't understand how to handle people with real problems, you know? Yeah. And and that's uh and that's very, very interesting because my it's funny that my example was Brad Fittler. Uh, you know, again, Eastern Suburbs is a kind of the epicenter of that. And I think that that was something I wanted to sort of mention as well, is that this, the Firebros and Silvertails thing is now, it still relates to class warfare uh, in a way, but it was, I guess the clubs that are representative of those labels has changed. So it's not West versus Manly anymore. It's kind of, I mean, I guess you could look at it as, you know, uh, you know, maybe a West, West in general, Western suburb, not maybe not West Tigers even, but it's any Western Sydney team versus uh, versus an Eastern Sydney team. Like, well, not Souths, but I guess the the Roosters yeah, being, the Roos- being I, the main one. I think the modern day Manly is the Roosters and Melbourne. Um, that's kind of the clubs that people see as the glamour clubs. I think also, I mean. They've kind of fallen off the perch a little bit as well, but the Brisbane as well, because of obviously you know just the way that club sort of operates. Um, but you know what? Yeah, you talk about Brad Fittler. Uh, I, I kind of now, if you're thinking about some of the what's been happening with the Roosters changes at the moment, you know, a similar story to the Latrell Mitchell story is the Mitchell Pierce story, um, where he's gone from basically premiers and you know, uh, you know, a club that's winning premierships and Finning uh, minor premierships and runners up to Newcastle, a team that's being built, and sort of the way people sort of see him now, they see him in a different light because you know they see him as more of a you know a character that could sort of build a club and things like that. And then on reverse, you've also got now the modern day Brad Fittler. I've actually found him, but he was a bit hard to find because at the moment he's locked down in France. Um, but that's James Maloney, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, because James Maloney, uh, you know, no matter where he goes, he's still got the same mentality, right? Whether he plays for a glamour club like the Roosters or he plays for Penrith or he, he's even playing for the Warriors and so forth, you know, he's still going to miss 40 or 50 missed tackles every season, but he's still going to, you know, have the uh, sort of the, um, you know, have the sort of, uh, you know, the, the class clown type thing, you know, amongst the playing group. And, you know, he's just going to be himself. And I think um, I think that's the kind of uh, that very similar vibe to the Brad Fittler style of, um, you know, outlook towards rugby league and life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, uh, you know, I guess the, the main point there in terms of the, the future of the rivalry is, is, is to, note, to note is basically that, you know, the Fibro Silvertail's mentality or the, the the description of it as a class division within Sydney is still relevant to this day. Yeah. And that hasn't changed. The the clubs that are representative of that has changed. And I think uh, you know, and, and potentially is a little bit more blurry on the on the fibro side because I mm. think uh, you know, 
clubs aren't necessarily looking to see themselves as as uh, too much of an underdog. You don't want to play that card too much because, as we said before, you know there are examples even of Wes, you know, finding that it made it very difficult for them to find uh, sponsors sustainable. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because yeah. again, as if you look at the the effect of the label in itself, you can. Uh, you know, it can it can create a self fulfilling prophecy that ends up doing you in basically. Uh, and there's a really great quote, if you don't mind. I'm just going to uh, build on that point because there was a, another great quote from Roy Masters to kind of uh, where he talks about what is the effect of this siege mentality. Uh, you know, not just the label, but the whole thing of of using it as a siege mentality kind of thing. And here is this quote, and I, and I think it kind of encapsulates perfectly what we've just been talking about, but he also introduces a new new thing as well. So the quote is, the siege mentality, the league is out to get us, view of the universe I preached, is in the long run essentially self-defeating. It encourages you to look inwards, to play negatively, to feel inferior to the opposition and not to risk-take. The only coach I have seen successfully combine a siege mentality with expansive play and deserve to be uh, and the deserve to be here football on a long-term basis is Brisbane's Wayne Bennett. His Queensland players forever moan about Southern injustice at the judiciary and with referees, and Bennett fuels it, but they discard the chip when they take the field, playing a loosey-goosey style. <laughs> so I love that. I love that quote because, as we know, Roy is a journalist now, and he. Yeah. Uh, he has a way with He's words. He's a great wordsmith. He's, He's a great wordsmith. But as a quote, as far as a quote goes, it's very loosey goosey. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> but and I do like it. But uh, look, I think that quote sort of sums it up mm. perfectly in a way. In that, look, what ended up happening with Wes, you know, you could argue that uh, the initial success of of you know creating that siege mentality of creating that label and inflaming the war of the Fibros and Silvertails, you know, ultimately led to a few things, as we've said in, so far. Uh, it led to the rise of the kind of the celebrity, you know, egotistical referee that takes charge and deals with the Biff. It led to, you know, maybe I got it the wrong way around. It led to the, uh, it led to the Biff <laughs> because uh, you you enrage your players so much that they take all their aggression out there on the field. They f- slap their faces beforehand. They get injured before they even get out there, which is ridiculous. And then they cause actual damage, you know, hurt other players, which is not a, not a thing to laugh at. But it, it is, you know, looking back now, it was brutal. The kinds of things that you can do to, to manipulate these players – to get them so riled up for, you know, really there's no reason for them to hate the other team. <laughs> like there was nothing personal mm. between them. The Manly players didn't do anything personal. But again, the the fueling of the the embellishing of the the truth and potentially in, including some lies about the siege mentality ultimately led to West kind of, uh, you know, not, not being able to find sponsors, which ultimately then led to them not being able to get success on the field. And I think one could argue that despite having that early success with using this mentality, uh, 
it quite quickly sort of uh, worked against them because, as Roy said in that quote, look, ultimately what happens is you get negative inward-looking play that doesn't actually inspire it doesn't actually lead you to play well. It leads you to just be aggressive, which is not the same as high performing. And so to me, that that's kind of a perfect quote to sum up uh, in a way what the impacts have been and what it, it ultimately, I think you could argue that it was to the detriment of the entire club. It was while it was a bit of a peak in uh, success and, and it showed a little bit of success, it didn't quite reach the the uh the fairy tale <laughs> that could be an almost fairy tale in the future that they wanted um and it ended up leading to their demise and potentially you could argue that it was the res- it, it caused the downfall of western suburbs as a club as an individual club and uh uh yes look a pretty big theory to to put out there but i wanted to get yeah. your thoughts on that before we wrap that up so what do you think about that that potentially the success actually led to their ultimate failure? Uh, look, uh, I uh, 100% agree with your uh, with your uh, estimation there. Because, look, ultimately, look, um, you know, you, you sort of see it at the end of the documentary. Once they lost that um, prelim game, uh, you know, in 1978, they felt the whole world was against them and they felt that the odds were too big for them to be able to do anything about it. And, you know, they didn't have the same success because... Yeah, uh, while that aggression, you know, is good while you're winning, um, you know, as soon as things start turning the other way, um, how you handle that becomes a big, you know, it's a big challenge. And that's that's the difference between sort of, you know, teams that do have that sustainable growth and teams that don't because they're able to, they're almost better able to handle, um, you know, sort of the, the wrong decision or the, you know, incorrect decision. I think that's a that's the marks of a great, great team. They're teams that can stay calm and in control while you know things aren't going with them. It's interesting. You know, at the moment on Netflix, there's the the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls um, sort of documentary series, and uh, you know uh, they sort of talk about the early setback the Bulls had before they won their you know six premierships that they did you know in those years, and you know it's interesting there. You know, as soon as uh, they would have uh, a game where they lost or, you know, they had something that went against them, you know, their reaction was, we need to get better as a team and we need to get better as players. And I think what happens sometimes with this underdog aggressive mentality is that um, you've got to couple it with actually trying to get better at the actual game. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You, you just can't be all aggression and biff. You actually got to try to get better. And, um, look, the legacy of Roy Masters and this mentality comes back. Uh, the legacy is state of origin. Um, it, it's very interesting. You know, like um, part of the reason why they didn't want the beef in 1978 is because they felt that this sort of beef um, would take, you know, young kids won't play rugby league. It's kind of interesting that actually, you know, um, since the 70s, 80s and 90s, there was lots of kids playing rugby league. And I'm pretty sure that um, as rugby league became more popular, um, you know, more and more kids wanted to play. And it became popular, I think, largely on the back of the great state of origin rivalries. In 1981, you know, there's a Queensland try that gets scored, but you kind of see, um, you know, the New South Wales play after he makes a tackle, the the hooker kind of um, stomps on his foot, uh, head 
like three or four times and they score that try and obviously the New South Wales players are sort of shocked. But then you kind of realise that the Queensland mentality was a very similar mentality to what Western Suburbs had um, in those early state of origins. Um, sort of, you know, we might not necessarily have the talent, but we've, you know, we've kind of got the Queensland spirit, which basically means we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll bring the biff sort of thing. And, um, and that's how they created that success. But they were able to transition that. And then, you know, uh, Roy Masters made these comments in 2005. Um, that's kind of at the same time where Queensland were sort of revving up their long legacy, which we know that they have now. You know, the Queensland as a, as a organisation in state of origin have been able to transition into a different mentality that's actually caused them that long-term success. So, um, But that's the legacy of, of, of this rivalry. And, um, you know, I, I think also the Paramount, <laughs> in a way, this kind of inevitably, I think, actually got the Paramount of Manly rivalry going as well because Greg Hartley was kind of the the part of the genesis of that. And um, that kind of happened around the same time as well. So it's kind of interesting that this this rivalry has kind of led to other rivalries in the end. But, um, yeah, Five Rose versus Civil Tales, what a story and uh, what a rivalry. Yeah, absolutely. And, look, uh, you know, we covered a lot of ground here and I'm going to leave – you with a uh, a final quote from Roy Masters that kind of uh, puts it all into perspective. But yeah, look, uh, uh, a really great sort of in depth analysis there of uh, of this rivalry and what it means uh, in terms of uh, class warfare in Sydney and uh, and what it what it what it's how it's shaped the premiership, how it's shaped rugby league, really the landscape of rugby league. It's led to the we think led to the demise of. A, of a club, uh, the club that initiated it, uh, it's led to state of origin. So the transferal of of that hatred, kind of uh, you know, hate versus hate, state versus state, kind of mate versus mate thing, uh, you know, to a representative level. Uh, and as as we said earlier as well, it's led to a change in the style of referee. It's led to so many things. So really, an, a rivalry that, on the surface, it seems very simple, but when you dive into it, like I said, like like opening up the layers of onions <laughs> you see the layers uh that are that are, that kind of come out of that and and it's it's a very intricate story indeed and continues to be a very integral part uh, of the essence of the fabric of uh of sydney and the story of sydney but i'm going to leave you tish and everyone out there with one more quote from uh, from Roy that that uh, you know now that we've talked about the impact and and decades de- forty years later we're still talking about the impact of this fibro silvertail rivalry even though the, its representative uh, representatives are different clubs now uh, potentially um, here is an interesting quote so uh, he talks about uh, meeting with uh, meeting with someone and uh, actually let me just get into get into the uh, thing again all right i'm gonna i'm gonna read the final quote so the final quote is uh from roy from that speech in 2005 uh at the uh tom brock lecture and so basically it goes like this uh so he says in preparing this speech i asked boland uh, so this is Warren Boland, what he recalled of the Fibro years when, and he reaffirmed my suspicion that I approach all football games as life's best chance to exact revenge. Confrontation was the essence of my view of the universe, but uh, sociological 
differences gave the Fibro Silvertail feud a more violent meeting point. When we played Manly, he said, you were on about their porches. Uh, he said, if it was Canterbury, it was the hypocrisy of the family club. Penrith blokes walked around with a cigarette packet rolled up in the sleeve of their T-shirt, tight shorts to impress the Sheilas and sunglasses hooked into their hair. You had a line for everyone. It was more about motivation than class warfare. That said, it was more pointed when we played Manly. So Tish and everyone out there, to me, that is a a great quote because it kind of, it kind of uh, symbolizes the fact that you know, all of this uh, rivalry that was instigated by Roy Masters, basically he he did it to <laughs> he, he had a line for everyone. He did it to everyone. He basically reinforced this siege mentality by pointing out uh, that everyone in a way was kind of elitist uh, and that the whole world was against them. It wasn't just the silver tails. It was really potentially the best way to describe it fibros versus the world <laughs> versus everyone else so to me that that kind of uh is a great kind of exemplification of uh what um you know what what basically uh this rivalry is all about which is uh potentially it's not just about class warfare but potentially it was just a trick that roy masters pulled to try and get his team motivated to feel like the world was against them. So, uh, yeah, that's, I guess that's the, that's the, uh, the final thought there for the day is that, uh, look at what's happened as a result of, uh, uh, a coach's motivational tricks <laughs> quite a lot is changed the course of history of rugby league history. And, uh, and, and in doing so has tapped into the underlying class warfare, uh, within Sydney. So Tish, that is it for this podcast. Uh, yeah, we uh, don't forget, everyone, you can catch us uh, via email, ourrepublic at gmail.com or on our website, ourrepublic.com. You can also check us out on Facebook, on iTunes, where you can download this podcast and subscribe. Uh, and please leave your review and post your comments. And finally, we're also on Twitter. So our handle is at RL. Uh, underscore Republic. And uh, so please check us out on Twitter and follow us there. Tish, over to you to sign us off. Well, thank you, Dr. Teen. I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this edition of the Rugby League Republic. But that's all for this episode of the Rugby League Republic. We are your hosts, Tish and Dr. T. Join us next time on the Rugby League Republic. Bye for now.